Welcome to Get on the Mend from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy. So with evidence-based advice from our physicians, researchers, and healthcare providers, take charge of your health. Approximately 1 in 25 adults in the U.S. will experience a swallowing problem. That's difficulty or pain when swallowing or not being able to swallow at all, whether it's liquids, food, or saliva. Getting treatment from a speech-language pathologist can help. In this episode, Dr. Angela Van Sickle, assistant professor at the TTUHSC School of Health Professions, explains what causes someone to have a problem swallowing, how to get treatment, and what we can do now to try to prevent having this problem in the future. Dr. Angela Van Sickle, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the Health Sciences Center? I'm from Northwest Pennsylvania, um, like 90 miles south of Buffalo, New York. I don't know if that (laughs) changes anything, but I'm so lucky. I work here at Texas Tech University in the Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences Department, and um, I teach and do research and clinic. I'm very lucky. I say that because the courses I teach are actually topics I really enjoy. In fact, they align with my research also. I teach voice and voice disorders, and then dysphagia, which is swallowing disorders. And that is also what I like to research. So we also have a clinic here, and I work with students and see clients with speech, language, cognitive, and swallowing disorders in our clinic. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. What is dysphagia, and what are some common causes? Ah, dysphagia, it's, it's, sort of, it's a medical term for swallowing disorders. So put simply, it's just difficulty swallowing. Causes, that's, it's interesting because you don't wake up one day with dysphagia. It's, it doesn't like stand on its own. Maybe some people, that is the first symptom that they might see if something else is going on. As we age, you could develop dysphagia, um, but some common causes are for infants or children, prematurity. So if they're born prematurely, they haven't had that time to practice swallowing in the womb. And so we will intervene and work with premature infants on swallowing. As adults, some common causes are neurogenic disorders like stroke or brain injury, Parkinson's, ALS. Other than neurogenic, if people have cancer, head and neck cancer is another common uh, cause or trauma. You know, if that area or those structures are traumatized, then you could also have a swallowing problem. So those are probably the the main and common causes. So about how many people would you say are affected by it? I love that question because I had to look it up. (laughs) I know in like the skilled nursing facility, I worked in skilled nursing facilities for a long time, and it could be up to 50 to 75% of people at that age in in that setting. But according to a publication in the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, it affects up to one in up to 15 million, I'm sorry, 15 million adults in the United States. And I looked up a few other publications and found it could be one in 25 adults per year. And then in children, nine, nine out of every 1000 between three and 17 years of age. That sounds very common. Right. Like I said, it's usually somebody has a stroke or a TBI, a brain injury. 
the prevalence is like if you have something else. So you could look up those things, but not everybody with a stroke or not everybody with brain injury or Parkinson's ends up with dysphagia. So it really depends on, uh, you know, the, the progress of the disease or the process of it. I don't know if that, I know this is data that I found published in 2014 and 15. And then the, um, National Foundation of Swallowing was 15 million. It's a lot. And there are several different areas that can be affected. You know, it could be in the oral phase, chewing, have difficulty chewing. It could be the actual swallowing in the throat. So there's a lot of different things. And there is treatment. And I know you'll ask me about that, but there are treatments that can be helpful. So I don't know about really if it's changing. I think that those numbers seem to be pretty accurate to me and from my career and what I've seen it's like in some settings if you work in a hospital setting you'll it's probably 90% of a speech language pathologist's caseload <laughs> and in skilled nursing facilities it's pretty high you know it depends on where you work but yeah overall i think those are pretty accurate numbers so you you mentioned treatment already so yes. so what is the treatment yeah, that is a big question. <laughs> like from yeah. an infant to an adult, I mean, that's exactly. a huge range for treatments. Yes, and it, it is different from uh, infants to adults. And, and it truly be, depends on the, um, the issue, the problem. So as I mentioned, you could have a problem in just the oral, you know, phase of chewing. So that would be different treatment than if it was actually in the swallow. But even in the swallow, there is so much that can go wrong. It is truly amazing when you learn about it, how our bodies are so coordinated to protect the airway and to swallow correctly. But yes, treatment is available. Um, It is very specific to the problem. So it's hard to answer that question. There is treatment. Yes. And there are good researched evidence-based treatments for many of the issues that we see. So how soon should people seek treatment and how would they go about doing that? Um, My opinion would be, my professional opinion would be rule of thumb as soon as possible. As soon as they're cognitively or, you know, alert and able to work on swallowing. I've seen patients with Parkinson's or other disorders or diseases that have waited. And there are these neuroplasticity principles like use it or lose it. We've all heard that one, use it or lose it, use it and improve it. And so I have actually witnessed that in some patients or clients that, you know, they put, they were put on tube feedings and it was 14 months before I started treatment. And so a lot of the skills were lost from not swallowing. Um, as we age, we swallow less also fewer times per hour. So um, yeah, use it or lose it. I think the earlier, the better. And because we can develop, we try to compensate if something's wrong. Of course, we try to, of course, we want to eat. I do. <laughs> and we want to swallow. So we might develop some compensatory strategies that may interfere later with rehabilitation. So I think the earlier, the better. And that's my professional opinion. There are cases, of course, that, you know, it's better to wait till swelling goes down if it's an injury or things like that. So not every case is the sooner the better, but I think overall, in general, I would say the sooner the better. And how to go about that? There are um, outpatient clinics 
in Lubbock. We have an outpatient clinic here at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, a speech language hearing clinic. So that's outpatient. A lot of dysphagia patients are usually seen in the hospital after whatever happens, happens. Um, But there are outpatient clinics in Lubbock that if they wanted to research that or, you know, if they needed information, they can call here. We can also provide information. You know, if they didn't want to come to this clinic, that's fine. We also provide information about other clinics that they could look into. Now, with treatment, is this something that could also be done online through telemedicine? Yes, this one is kind of difficult. We have been doing, obviously, with COVID, a lot of telemedicine. Um, So we are doing that. And I think for dysphagia, it's a little more difficult because it's, I say that, but then I think of other other things we work with. A lot of it's difficult to do. But with dysphagia, you, you really, and I've been to some continuing education courses on this, You really have to have a person there with the client that can do some of the hands-on things that we need to do in treatment for dysphagia. So it's, it can be done and it is being done, but to have, you have to train somebody that's actually on site with the person most of the time, not always. There are some cases, but if you're evaluating for sure, it's usually that's best practice. What I've learned so far about telemedicine and dysphagia. So how can we help our loved ones who might have this problem? That was a big question too. And in general, I'd say support them, of course, help them find a speech language pathologist with experience treating dysphagia and maybe even possibly with experience with dysphagia and whatever disorder, if the person has Parkinson's or ALS, you know, you might be able to find a speech language pathologist that works with ALS. I know there are researchers that that is what they research and um, speech pathologists that first, you know, depending on their setting, they see a lot of the same disorders or diseases and they know more how that's going to look as they continue to work with the person. Of course, we truly do. um, I try to involve family and all in whatever therapy that I do. Uh, It's helpful for generalization, obviously. So if you're doing dysphagia treatment and the family can be involved, I used to have a lot of families involved and it was always helpful. I love to have the families involved because they can then, you know, I might be with them an hour, even if it's an hour a day, somebody else might be with them to help them throughout the day. So I think it's great if families can be involved and carry over whatever you're doing in therapy at home. And, you know, that should make or makes for better outcomes, but be supportive. I think that's the, the number one most important thing. It, it is hard. I, I, I'm sorry if I'm talking more, but um, it is hard when somebody has to do strategies or their diet has changed. And, you know, food is such a big part of our socializing and, you know, our lives. So when they have to eat a pureed diet, maybe in a restaurant, it's, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of tough. So I think being supportive, maybe finding the things that are period that are, you know, like refried beans or mashed potatoes, where they don't have to feel so different than everybody else. My husband had this problem. And initially, when we would go out to restaurants, 
you know, I would finish much faster than he did. So I would, because I could see my husband feeling stressed about not about taking longer. And then, you know, the wait staff coming also and asking, you know, is there anything else that we can do for you or anything like that? And yes, absolutely. I I, I did uh, notice that if I took a little bit longer with him, his, he was not as anxious or stressed. That's great. That's great advice. I I agree. I think if I were this, just from my personal experience, if I were in that situation with somebody, I probably would try to, you know, eat similar things. So they didn't, I don't, I would feel very empathetic and would want to change my, you know, to make them feel more comfortable, eat similar things. If they can't have steak, you know, I'm not going to sit and have a steak in front of them or, you know, something like that. I think support in any way you can by finding the help they can, the, the people that can help them and then being involved in their therapy, I think is a great way. Because again, like I said, I can't be there 24 seven with my clients and patients, which I would love to be, but <laughs> they need, they can continue. And one of the programs that I've been certified in actually has homework, which, so if there's, family that could help with that homework it's it would be very very helpful well thank you for all this information it's been very interesting is there anything else you'd like to add I can't think of anything else I I love teaching dysphagia and I and researching it and helping people I think that's the most thing in fact my research is really based I hope to help people with dementia and dysphagia Um, I feel like I've worked for goodness, I don't know how many, I should, have looked, I should have added up my years of experience because I don't even remember, but I was licensed in 1992. So that'll tell you. <laughs> but throughout my experience, I've seen a lot of people sort of change diets for patients with dementia. And then that's, that's their diet. They like, they don't, and there is research that shows that they don't get follow. There's no follow up, and they don't get their diets changed back. And so, I'd really like to help them with um, rehabilitation and maybe even prevention when they have the diagnosis. But I think for everybody, you know, as, as I said, we swallow fewer times per. There's research by Crary and Carnaby on this, and um, I guess my idea for my future and my loved ones is like, keep swallowing, swallow, even if you're not eating as much, we eat less and we swallow less just naturally. So maybe sit and just keep swallowing, enjoying food. (laughs) Swallow, swallow, swallow. Don't lose that skill. (laughs) So how about how many times per hour should we be swallowing? I know I should remember that and look that up. But even if I don't recall that information right now, even though that should be a something I should know right off the top of my head. When we do therapy with patients that haven't been swallowing, we have them swallow 100 times per session. And when I teach that, it's like people think, oh my gosh, that takes forever. But my Parkinson's patient that I saw recently, it would take 15 to 20 minutes. And that's like, you know, okay, get a sip, swallow. We have them swallow hard with effort, you know, use those muscles. Really, it doesn't take that long. So if you find, and this was somebody that was on a tube feeding, so they were swallowing less because they weren't eating food. And then some medications and some disorders also dry your mouth out. So you're not even swallowing as many times 
saliva. And so I think, I doubt anybody that I, you know, my family members, if I ask them to do this, they probably won't. But, uh, you know, just take a, take your favorite drink and just, you know, swallow, swallow, swallow. I think that's my plan with dementia patients. I, I, you know, I'd have to do the research, but I feel like once you get the diagnosis, you know, keep them swallowing. I would love to have like a little preventive group every day in every nursing home, like snack time, you know, and the activities directors would love, love having another activity. Um, so a lot of times it's too late. By the time they lose their skills, then they're on a pureed diet. Well, I don't think it's too late. I think we could rehabilitate people. So that's the first thing I need to find out and then see if we can prevent it from happening. So, you know, because with dementia, especially they, they stop eating sometimes just because they don't, people don't realize fast enough that they don't know what the utensils are for anymore. So there's a lot of reasons. (laughs) That's, That's a big job, but yeah, that's the population. And I don't have anybody in my family that had dementia. It's just that I worked so long with people and they are just, I don't know. They just are near and dear to my heart. I just want to help them <laughs> because they also don't have a voice of their own to absolutely completely advocates for themselves. So when your diets change, they don't, they don't, they might fight it by not eating it, which just right. you know makes the problem worse. If anyone is interested in this field, mm-hmm. what background would they need? The what, field what of speech that? language pathology. Yeah. And it's funny because we are speech language pathologists. We need to add swallowing in there and cognition. But the background is, uh, I think they, you can get a bachelor's degree. You don't have to have a bachelor's degree in speech and hearing sciences. But if you already know that's the path you want to take, that would be the path. We have several students that find out after they get their bachelor's degree that that's what they want to do. So we actually have a second degree where students can take the courses needed and it's called, it's well, it's called a second degree now, but it's like leveling. They take the courses they need. So they're ready for graduate school. And then you get a master's degree in speech language pathology. And then we have a, you know, as many medical disciplines do, we have a, a clinical fellowship year, which is nine months truly of full-time work, which is your first job. So it's not, (laughs) it's not like free labor, but you know, they (laughs) our first nine months and then we get licensed. Takes two years to get the master's degree. And it wasn't a thing when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, but we do have speech therapy aids now with a bachelor's can do some work in schools with speech and language. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about dysphagia. If you have any other questions or need any advice, you can call our clinic or you can email me if you have questions about dysphagia also. I can provide you with my email if you'd like that. Great. I will include a link in our notes. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Get on the Mend. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Get on the Mend is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center.